As we turn to uh, John chapter 10, let us receive its truth meekly. Today we wrap up chapter 10, and we're picking up in verse 31. Well, why don't I read 29? My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. The Jews picked up some stones again to stone him. Jesus answered them, I have shown you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you going to stone me? The Jews answered, It is not for a good work that we are going to stone you, but for blasphemy, because you, being a man, make yourself God. Jesus answered them, Is it not written in your law? I said, You are God's. If he called them gods to whom the word of God came, and the scripture cannot be broken, do you say of him whom the Father consecrated and sent into the world, you are blaspheming because I said, I am the Son of God? If I am not doing the works of my Father, then do not believe me. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works that you may know and understand that the Father is in me, and I am in the Father. Again they sought to arrest him, but he escaped from their hands. He went away again across the Jordan to the place where John had been baptizing at first, and there he remained. And many came to him, and they said, John did no sign, but everything that John said about this man was true, and many believed in him there. Let's pray. Father, we ask that just as Jesus opened the minds of the disciples in Emmaus, so we ask that our minds would be opened, that we might understand the Scriptures, and that therefore we might know Christ more fully, and that we might know ourselves and our need for Him more fully. For your glory and our good, we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. For those of you who are in Sunday school, I ask your apologies. Uh, You heard this story a, a few weeks ago. And uh, when Amy and I were new to each other, yeah, Amy's eyes just rolled. Yeah, I know. She hates it when I talk about her. Um, I had gone on vacation up to New Jersey, which is where she lived. We had, uh, we had met in February. We had been talking on the phone, and she had come down again for spring break, and uh, we had spent a lot of time together, and... Uh, one of my best friends was living in New Jersey at the time, so I had already planned to go up there and catch a Yankees game with him. Well, actually, catch a Red Sox game with him. It just happened to be in Yankee Stadium. And, uh, <clears throat> and so, yeah, went up there and got to spend more time with Amy. And there was one time uh, where we were sitting at my friend's house and we were playing Settlers of Catan. Oh, what joy that brings me. And uh, I made the mistake of uttering these words my girlfriend. Amy was immediately taken aback. Wait a minute. We haven't talked about this. And so we enter into, you know, sort of speak, the difference between men and women. Uh, Men tend to focus on what they do, and we were acting like we were boyfriend and girlfriend. And so in my mind, that's what we are. 
In her mind, we hadn't talked about it yet. Those words had not been uttered, and therefore it was not, it is not a reality. It's sort of like Genesis 1. You know, you must speak these things into existence. Okay? We will speak boyfriendness into existence. Okay? And so we we briefly had the relationship definition talk and moved on with life. As you can see, we got married. It's all all right. Okay? My point is, words and works or actions being together, reinforcing one another, uh, taken as a totality. If I had merely uh, spoken words to Amy and not backed up those words with my actions, she shouldn't believe me. That's the problem that's kind of going on here as we look at the end of John 10. The Jews are separating his works and his words and therefore are misinterpreting and misunderstanding his words because they are not seen in light of the things that he does. Our big idea this morning is that the good works of Jesus prove the true words of Jesus. And we need them to be proven true for our own good. Let's start with recognizing that the God who made himself man brings glory to God. And I guess I should have put the Father in there. But we see that the the Jewish leaders really didn't like when Jesus said that the Father and I are one. And they proved by their works that they didn't like his words. And they began to pick up stones in order to kill him, to execute him. Now, if we remember at that point in time in the history of Israel, I'm breathing too hard. Let's see if that helps. Um, Rome was in charge of Jerusalem. The people really didn't have the power of capital punishment at that point in time. But, you know, sometimes vigilante justice happens. Okay? Sometimes the mob rules. And we see this taking place in Acts 7. When Stephen preaches... And when Stephen lays out the fact that they have been resisting the Holy Spirit, as we heard earlier, uh, from the beginning, and that they had killed all of God's prophets, and in fact they had killed the Son of God, the Righteous One, and those people, like these people here in John 10, went nuts, laid hands on him, and stoned him to death. Okay? It happened. People don't always follow the law. And these people in particular were not following. They were trying to follow, they thought, God's law at the expense of Roman law. Okay? So, Jesus, and this is part of what astounds me about Jesus. He knows, as it says in chapter 13, he knows whose he was, he knows where he's going, and on these things, he knows that he is loved by the Father. And somehow, in the midst of this riotous mob that is bent on destroying him, Jesus is, an, is calm enough to ask a question. Now, if you all were trying to stone me, I don't think I'd stand there and ask you a question. I'd be trying to run away. Jesus doesn't do this. Now remember from what we talked about last week, he was in a sense almost trapped because they had surrounded him and his disciples when they were interrogating him. So last week's discourse and this week's action occurs while he is essentially encircled by these Jewish people, uh, particularly the leaders who are trying to confront him. 
he asked them, for what good work are you trying to kill me? He focuses on the works that he has done. That word uh, good that we saw when it talks about the good shepherd, uh, it talks about works that are noble, works that are worthy, works that are beautiful. So he's saying, what of these, which one of these good, noble, worthy, beautiful things that I have done are you going to kill me for? Are you going to kill me because I healed the man born blind? Is that the one? Are you going to heal me because I, I raised up the paralytic who was by the pool? Is that the one? Going beyond John's gospel, is it because I raised up the widow's son? Is that the good work that you're going to stone me for? Tell me, which one of these things are you going to stone me for? But it's not just that they're good. It's that he did them in the Father's name. He did them in the authority of the Father, by the power of the Father, in order to bring glory to the Father. I love how Tim Chester talks about this idea in uh, his book, Delighting in the Trinity. The Son's actions are the outflow of the Father's love. I like that. I like that a lot. And so the, the, the goodness of these works is found in the fact that they flow from the love of the Father towards people, despite the fact they're lost in sin. It's precisely because they are lost in sin that this love comes to them. Now, the Jewish leaders say, it's not because of your works. Apparently they have no problem with that, aside from the fact that you know Jesus earlier had supposedly broken the Sabbath uh, because of uh, healing the man on the Sabbath and making him work. Okay, We'll kind of forget about that for a moment. It's because of your words. They don't see the truthfulness of his words because they see them in isolation, they see them in a vacuum, and they separate them from his works. And as a result, they see his words of him and the Father being one as blasphemy. As speaking in a way that um, impinges upon the glory of God, precisely by making himself a mere man from their perspective. Okay, that's their problem. Making, them, making himself a mere man into God. Now this passage is just chock full of irony. And part of the irony here is that is they're completely missing the point. The idea is not that a man is making himself to be God, but in fact that God, the Word who was with God and the Word who was God, became man. That's what really is going on throughout John's Gospel. They've completely turned it all upside down because they have not been listening to his words and also because they've not been paying attention to his works. They fundamentally missed the point of Jesus' ministry and who Jesus is. And because of this, they see him as guilty of blasphemy 
And the penalty for that, of course, as we saw in Leviticus 24, was stoning. People still fundamentally misunderstand Jesus. We've talked about Bart Ehrman and how he fundamentally misunderstands Jesus, how he once was a Christian and now he's a liberal scholar who thinks that Jesus was a man who the disciples and apostles turned into God in their mistaken attempts to give him glory and honor. It's not so. We have to fundamentally understand, we have to grasp this fact, and this is exactly what the the Jewish people here didn't get, is that he is the God who was sent to save sinful people. That's the title, my title, which you probably haven't heard very much, of this entire series in John. The God sent to save. Jesus was sent from the Father in order to save sinners. We see this clearly in 1 Timothy uh, chapter 1, verse 15. This, this saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. If you haven't memorized that, I encourage you to memorize that. Okay? First off, you need to memorize it when you feel, you need to bring it back up when you feel the weight of guilt crushing you. So that you remember that even though I am the worst of sinners, I am the kind of person Jesus came to rescue. You need to know that yourself, personally. But also, that's what you can communicate to other people. There's the gospel in a nutshell. Boom. You don't have all the mechanics of the gospel and all that, but you have the essence of the gospel in that one verse. The world is filled with messed up sinners. You and I are both messed up sinners, but here's the good news. Jesus came to save us. Do you want him to save you? Bottom line. Jesus does the things he does, and he says the things he says, precisely because he's revealing the Father to us, and precisely because he's coming to sinners in need of rescue. He is not a man who is coming to show people how good they are. Okay. Uh, when I was at the airport, this is the, is it the 30th anniversary of Up With People. They had banners there at the airport, up with people. Did it start in Tucson? Is that the problem? I don't know. He did not come to say, up with people. Look how great you are. Look how good you are. Look how gifted you are. You should feel better about yourself. No, he came to people who recognized they were sick with sin to rescue them from the wrath of God that was going to come upon sinners. This is a rescue mission, pure and simple. And we see this repeatedly throughout John's gospel. So Jesus doesn't steal God's glory, but he brings glory to the Father by his word and by his works. Secondly, let us consider this, that Jesus will judge those who judged him wrongly. We see this particularly in verses 34 through 36. His response to them about this point of blasphemy is illuminating, to say the least. He points them to, 
your law. Now, let's not make too much about this. Some people have tried to go with this, that this is uh, the, the law of the Jews, and we're no longer under this law at all. That's not where Jesus is going with this. Okay? He's talking about the fact that the law that they esteem, the law that they cherished, says something about this that they have overlooked that they don't recognize, that they have not understood and applied, okay? They love it so much that apparently they don't study it as they ought. Sort of the irony that is present here as well, okay? They're focused on works, sorry, on words, not on works. And so Jesus quotes from Psalm 82, which is most likely going to be addressing the judges of Israel. I said, you are gods, sons of the Most High, all of you. Nevertheless, like men, you shall die and fall like any prince. Arise, O judge of the earth, for you, uh, for you shall inherit, inherit the nations. And so in that, in that passage, that psalm, the psalmist is talking about how in their office they are called gods, little g, sons of the Most High. Okay? Now, these are most likely the judges of Israel. They have received the Word of God. They're intended to apply the Word of God to the circumstances and the actions of the people and to make decisions based on that. And they are corrupt. And so what the psalmist is telling them prophetically is that they are like every other man and they are going to die and they're going to fall like any other prince. You think you're exempt from life, says the psalmist, but you will experience what all men experience. Though they had received the word of God, they were still miscarrying justice just like these people who have surrounded Jesus. Okay? They're miscarrying justice. They are sons of the Most High, adopted by Him, at least, you know, as part of the visible church, and yet they're going to die. Jesus lets them know that they too will die and be held accountable like everyone else. They're not a privileged class, they're not the elite. This is something very similar to what we see taking place in racism. that one class or group of people acts as though the law only applies to the other class. That somehow we're above that class. And so laws are created to you know, create separation and to keep people exploited and, and not able to uh, fulfill you know, God's call on them and things like that. But God's not fooled by any of that. He's going to hold those people accountable too. Not just the ones that they've tried to hold accountable. So that's what, that's what Jesus is basically saying here. You're, you're trying to hold me accountable when in reality you are the ones 
who will be held accountable. The term God fit them in their role. And Jesus affirms this. He says, don't the Scripture say this? The Scripture cannot be broken. The Scripture is not lying when it says this. It is not mistaken when it says this about people. How much more true is it when the Son of God says He is the Son of God? How can it be wrong for the Son of God to speak those words when God affirms that these people are lowercase gods? Okay? You kind of understand this argument from the lesser the people to the greater, Jesus, the God-man. Okay, that's where Jesus is going with this. Jesus himself is divine. He is God. He is eternal, infinite and unchanging in all of his characteristics. Okay? He is also the one who was consecrated and sent into the world. That word consecrated, we usually see it translated as uh, made holy or set apart. Okay? Holy. And so in terms of his office as as mediator and the God-man, Jesus is set apart as the only mediator between God and man. That's the idea of consecration. He's set apart for this purpose. Uh, There's only one. There's there's, not a lot of different mediators. He's set apart. We don't usually think about Jesus being set apart because he's not set apart the same way we are. Well, not all the ways we are. We are also set apart as God's treasured possession. So in that way, it's similar. Okay? But when we usually think about being set apart or being made holy, we think of um, the fact of growing in sanctification. Okay? Jesus was perfectly sanctified. So we're not saying that. But he's set apart for this purpose, and he's sent into the world, which means he's not of this world. But he's sent here to accomplish this great work of God. He bears the Father's stamp. He bears the Father's authority. Yeah, I'm repeating myself from point one. Because that's the point. Okay. Not only can the Scripture not be broken with regard to the fact that they are called gods, but this particular prophecy will take place and was taking place. And what prophecy? Verse 8. Arise, O God, judge the earth, for you shall inherit all the nations. Who's going to inherit all the nations? Jesus and all those who are united to him. What is he going to do when he arises, when he returns? He's going to judge the earth. There's the irony again. They're judging the one who's going to judge them in the last day. Again, because they're blind, They don't see the reality of all that is going on in their midst. God's promises to us, okay, cannot fail precisely because they are backed by His wisdom, by His goodness, and by His power. And so that is why we can say the Scripture cannot be broken because it is the Word of God and He will bring it to pass. There is no one that can stay His arm. There is no one that can thwart His will. It's going to happen. And those promises are of salvation, but also judgment for the wicked. 
In community group or in Isaiah, for those of you who aren't in a community group, and I encourage you to join one if you're not in one, we're in Isaiah. And that is basically the whole book of Isaiah in a nutshell. God's salvation for his people and his judgment on the wicked. Why do we need to hear that for 66 chapters? Because we need to hear it for 66 chapters. Because we are so prone in the midst of this life, in the midst of our circumstances, to forget that God will, in fact, bring about salvation for his people, and he will, in fact, bring judgment on the wicked because we see the wicked prosper now. Because we see his people suffering now. We need repeated reminders of what will be to sustain us through what is. And so he gave us 66 chapters of Isaiah and a whole bunch more to drive this fact home to us that we so desperately need to believe, that we might be sustained. And so Jesus will arise to judge the world for its evil works and for its lying words. Third thing I want us to ponder this morning. The mutually indwelling trinity is received far away. We'll unpack that in a moment. It's a little tricky. The mutually indwelling trinity is received far away. Jesus focuses on his good works, which he calls the works of the Father, in order to support the truthfulness of his words. He says, if he didn't do such good, noble things, then they shouldn't believe his words. He's trying to put them back together again. If I don't do words that authenticate my message, disregard the message. What if I've done those things that authenticate the message? And I subject to you that giving sight to a man born blind and healing a paralytic and raising a dead boy, those kind of qualify as things that would be authenticating the message in my book anyway. Then know it and grow in it. He accept these works so that you may begin to know and understand the truth. And here he uses the same word, but in two very different tenses. One is that idea of initial knowing something, and then the idea of growing and understanding, continuing to know, but to a deeper level. Okay? I knew my wife. I know her more now than I did. I'm growing in my understanding of who Amy is. Not as fast as she might like, not as fast as I might like. It's the same thing with the gospel. It's the same thing with Christ. Okay? At conversion, we have a knowledge of Him. Okay? We continue to grow in our knowledge of Him, our understanding of all that He has done, so that it gets deeper into our hearts and we see the vast extensiveness of its implications for our world. When you're converted, it's basically forgiveness of sin. Okay, that's what, you know, you're like a babe in Jesus. That's all you know, forgiveness of sin. But as we grow and mature, we begin to understand more of what he has done and more of how it applies to our lives and deals with a lot of stuff how it deals with the shame in our lives, how it deals not just with guilt, 
but the patterns of sin in our lives, uh, dealing with the sin of others, we begin to grow in our understanding of the sufficiency of Jesus Christ for our lives. Okay? Believing the works enables us to believe the words. I'll go back to Amy for a minute. Well, actually, me and Amy. What if I told Amy, I love you, I love you, I love you. But I spent most of my time talking to other people. That's back when we were dating, but not dating. <laughs> but I spent most of my time on the phone with other women. And I went to lunch with other women. There's a disconnect between my words and my actions. She shouldn't have believed me if that was the case, thankfully. It was not the case. No, I'm not confessing anything, dear. Okay. <laughs> but I can't just say I love her. I also have to show her I love her. Jesus is not just saying he's one with the Father. He's showing he's one with the Father. Okay? There we go. Lost my place. He goes deeper in explaining that idea of the Father and I are one. He says, the Father is in me and I am in the Father. Now that obviously clears it up. Doesn't it? It's beyond our experience. Jesus is saying something beyond our experience. Theologians call this uh, the perichoresis, or as uh, Lethem described, uh, identifies it in his book, Union with Christ, the mutual indwelling. That's where I get this, this term, this idea, the mutual indwelling, that they are taking up the same space, but in more than just, a, obviously, a physical sense. They co-inhere... They indwell perfectly so that there are no hidden secrets. They know each other perfectly. They love each other perfectly. Okay, It's what marriage is intended to be a picture of, an imperfect picture of. Okay, Because I can only know my wife in as much as she lets me know her. And she will only know me in as much as she, as I let her know me. Okay? Or other people let her know about me. So, they, they don't have that problem, so to speak. It's like Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden before they had ate the forbidden fruit, naked and unashamed, that idea of total openness to one another, nothing to hide, completely full knowledge of each other, Unity in love and in purpose, this, this triune community of love. Tim Chester, again, speaks about this in his uh, book, Delighting in the Trinity, which I recommend. Um, it's, it's not too hard theologically. Developing an idea from Athanasius, they said each person of the Trinity shares the life of the other two 
so that they mutually interpenetrate each other in a community of being. I like that. Still, it's hard for us to grasp that. But they dwell within each other perfectly. Which makes sense when you consider the fact that God is infinite, eternal, and unchanging. All three persons of the Trinity are infinite, eternal, and unchanging. They're all spiritual. And so as a result, they're able to know each other fully, love each other fully, and that love, okay, that idea that God is love, that's an essential aspect of who God is, is an argument for the existence of the Trinity because God has to love someone. He loves himself, Father, Son, and Spirit. They're, they're rooted in the bonds of love together. And so creation flows out of their mutual love that overflows. Salvation also flows out of their love for one another. They choose to do it in love, in other words. It's not an automatic thing. It's an intentional thing. They chose to create that they might share their love. They chose to redeem, to restore people to their love. Salvation isn't really, you know, a get out of hell free card, but it really is God bringing us into God's eternal community of love. That's what it is. To know Him. So, in other words, Jesus is greater than you could ever imagine He is, and this particular Jesus came to save sinners like you to grant you a salvation greater than you ever could imagine that it could be. Once again, what's their response? It's time to arrest Jesus (laughs) so we can have Him killed, apparently. They want to seize him. What's going on? Let's, let's take a step back, so to speak, and look at the bigger picture of what's going on. Let's think for a moment of Genesis chapter 4. Cain and Abel. The seed of the serpent has always hated the seed of the woman and has always tried to destroy it so it could could destroy the Redeemer that was to come. John talks about this in his third chapter of his first letter. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brothers were righteous. Okay? So we see Cain being of the evil one, his deeds are evil, his brother Abel is known by God, has faith in God, and is offering right sacrifices in anticipation of the Redeemer, and therefore his deeds are righteous, and Cain hates him. That's never stopped. The names have changed, but the players are the same. Okay? We see it right here. It goes back to John 3. What does it say? He's coming to the world. And what? 
they did not like the light, but they loved the darkness because their deeds were evil. These people's deeds are evil, and when the light comes, which shines on them and exposes the wickedness of their hearts for all to see, they want to kill it. That's what's going on. Back before uh, Guy Ritchie was making Sherlock Holmes films, back before he married Madonna and almost ruined his career, he made these British, I call them uh, crime comms, not to be confused with romantic comedies, rom-coms. I love these movies that he made because I'm a bizarre person. Okay, But all the characters have, well, not all of them, but a lot of them have these really weird names, like Freddy Fourfingers. You know? How can you go wrong when you have a character named Freddy Fourfingers? Okay? You know, Turkish, and Brick Top, and Dug the Head. And endearing to me. One of the characters was known as Boris the Blade, and he was a Russian in, in London. But Boris the, na- Boris the Blade had a different name in the eyes of Bullet Tooth Tony. See, another one of those great names. Don't you want to ha- have a name like Bullet Tooth Tony? You've you got to work hard and do evil things to have a name like Bullet Tooth Tony. Bullet Tooth Tony would call him Boris the Bullet Dodger because he couldn't kill him. It seemed that no matter how hard he tried, even though how many bullets he stuck in Boris's body, Boris would always live, and that was sort of the running joke through the film. You think he's dead, and he's not dead. Why am I bringing up this movie? They can't kill Jesus yet. No matter how hard they try, right now, he is Jesus the death dodger. Okay? They cannot kill him until the fullness of time. Until the time that has been set apart by the Father and in the way that has been set apart by the Father. He is not going to be, do- not going to be killed by stoning. He is going to be killed upon the cross precisely because he must bear the curse in fulfillment of the Scripture which Jesus says cannot be broken. Just as some companies sell no wine until it's time, or whatever their slogan is, Jesus can't die until it's time. And so once again, despite the fact that there are far more of them, he gets away. Think of the irony again. The good shepherd holds his sheep in his hand, and no one is able to take them away. They're secure. These guys can't lay their hands on Jesus. No matter how hard they try, they cannot lay hands upon him and seize him. And so Jesus leaves Jerusalem for the last time. Uh, when we see him coming back, it's, it's because he's coming to die. And he goes back to where John the baptizer was uh, baptizing and doing his ministry, and where John first identified Jesus as the Lamb of God who comes to take away the sins of the world. They go back there, and we note the interesting thing. John didn't do any signs, but everything he said about Jesus is true. And so they believe into Christ. 
the Christ who was rejected in Jerusalem, in the seat of Judaism, where you would think the people know the Scriptures and would welcome Him because He's the fulfillment of the Messiah. You'd think that's the place He's going to be welcome. That's the place He's hated and flees from for His life, so to speak. And He goes to this podunk place in the middle of nowhere where all of the Jews look down on that place because it's the sticks and it's we hear the banjos and all that kind of stuff. They didn't have banjos, but you know what I mean. That's where he's welcomed. That's where he's embraced. That's where he's loved. That is where they believe into him savingly. Irony. Lots of irony. So the Jewish leaders didn't grasp that Jesus' noble works authenticated his true words. And without these works, Jesus is just a crazy deceiver. He isn't a man who became God to show us how good we are. He is the God who became man to rescue us because we're so messed up and wicked. And if we have Christ, we have salvation. If we don't, we are still subject to the judgment when he returns. We cannot escape this message of judgment and salvation, even though we're not in Isaiah. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for Jesus. Thank you that he came to exegete or explain who you are, to show us who you are, to do good works in your name that show us he is who he says he is, so that by believing in his name we might have life and life to the full that by believing in his name, he might give us a spring of living water that flows out unto salvation within each of us. That by believing he is the bread of life, we might partake of him and have eternal life and never thirst, never hunger. That by believing in him who is the good shepherd, we would be secure in his hand and that we would follow him because we know his voice. We thank you for such a Savior. Help us to grow in our understanding of this Savior, that we might, by your Spirit, grow in our trust. And we ask this in his name. Amen.